Welcome to the Give Back Economy, a podcast about social innovation and social enterprise. Now with your host, Peter Miller. Welcome and we're going to a warm part of the United States to talk to Russ Farnsworth. Unfortunately, without Watson, his partner, but uh, we will uh, we'll get to that in a few minutes. So, Russ, where did you go to school? I grew up in a very rural town um, called Edgewood in Northern California, just maybe uh, forty miles south of the of the Oregon border. So it was. Um, really, really high up in California, a lot of, you know, the place that kind of people don't really think about when they think of California. You know, usually they think of San Francisco or Los Angeles, and uh, that was a very, very different lifestyle. That was a community of about 300 people. So, yeah, very small school. In fact, the school that I went to for elementary was uh, kindergarten through eighth grade, and only about, like, fewer than 100 kids in the whole school. What about after uh, elementary school? Where did you go to school then? Weed High was uh, the high school where most kids in my area went. So that's where I went. That school was only about 200 kids. So my graduating class, I believe, was 36. It was a very small school. What about after high school? Well, it was. I went directly into uh, community college. And I was able to do a semester there. And then it was just, it was so difficult trying to work and put myself through school. And I didn't have a car most of the time. I didn't have any financial support from parents or anyone else. So uh, after one semester, it was, I just thought it was too, too tough. And I decided to just try to work and make money. So I did that for a few years. I ended up going back to the junior college for another semester of classes, and then after that, I um, just went back into work again. Well, speaking of work, take us through your work experience. (laughs) Yeah, well, I started very early, so probably, you know, like nine years old, pulling weeds in people's gardens and babysitting kids and things like that. Um, I started working in restaurants at about the age of 13, um, and doing a lot of wood cutting and hauling hay, which is hard work, um, at a young age. And then I was from, from the age of 18 to 22, I was primarily working in restaurants. And then I was really too tall for that kind of work and my body wore out fast. So by the age of 22, I really had to get a corporate gig, um, and stop working in restaurants. And it took about seven years to make that happen. So I was doing temp jobs in different offices, uh, doing some tech work and sometimes just kind of administrative work. But then after about seven years of temping, I finally landed a full-time job at a law firm, which is not something I had ever really considered before, but that's where the, you know, the good job offer came from was a law firm. And so I decided to, you know, check it out as an opportunity, and it was a good opportunity, and so I went for it, and I ended up 
working in law firms for about 20 years. Then thereafter, once you have a little bit of experience working in a law firm, it actually uh, goes a long way for helping you get a job in another one. When going through your background, it looks to me like you're more street smart than academic smart. Is that fair to say? I would definitely agree with that, yes. But I did learn a lot in school, and um, I you know, studied some interesting subjects, especially in my couple of years of community college. You know, So things that really interest me, like physics and sciences. So having said that, you get through the academic part, you get through the work part, and all of a sudden, want to go in a whole different direction. <laughs> yeah. So talk about that. All right. So I, I think you're referring to my story of moving to Siskiyou County or moving back to Siskiyou. So uh, Edgewood, where I grew up, is in Siskiyou County and about, I think, 40 miles away from our the house where I grew up, my family had a little cabin property that was 10 acres and a small cabin that my parents had built back in 1959. And I was, uh, I, I suffer from a degenerative joint condition, which causes all my joints to wear out prematurely. So I could feel that um, my career was going to be coming to an end because it was, it was hard to live in Los Angeles in that busy lifestyle, keep up with the rat race, and then also be able to do all of the maintenance that my body required. So I retired at age 47, and my plan was to move up to my family's cabin property, which we've been going to for you know more than 60 years. And when I arrived, um, the neighbors there had torn up the driveway with a backhoe, and so I couldn't bring my belongings up to my place, uh, and I had to put everything into storage. And I called the sheriff to come out and enforce the easements that my family has and make sure that I could get to my property and they refused to do it. So they had kind of taken sides with the other neighbors before I'd even gotten there. And so all my stuff went into storage. I tried to move back on the property a couple of weeks later and, you know, again, kind of got the same resistance. I'd filled in the holes with my shovel uh, with, and my sister was there to help. Um, but the uh, deputy showed up and said, you know, again, that I had to go to the courthouse and prove that we even owned our property. They didn't believe that we even owned our property anymore. It was really, really weird. And uh, so eventually I did get things worked out with the sheriff's department to the point where they would let me go to my own property without threatening me with being arrested. But at the time that that had happened, it was really too late in the year for me to be able to rehabilitate the cabin and make it uh, worthy for me living in it throughout the winter. So at that point, I had to uh, rent a room for a year and uh, and wait until the next spring. And then when the next spring came, I made another attempt to move on to the property. I actually rented a bobcat excavator and i cleared out the road and and fixed it and then brought all my stuff in and you know started living there in the cabin uh so that was good for a while and uh the neighbors were not happy about it and 
I think I was there living in the cabin for about a, a year and a half, and then it was burned down. So I took a trip out of town and got a phone call on that trip that my place had been burned down. And the, um, the fire investigator knew that there was really nothing in the cabin that could start a fire. Like there was no electrical in the cabin. It was just a solar uh, setup. And I had been gone for a couple of days, so there was no fire burning in the stove. So it was pretty obvious that it was arson. And then I had surveillance cameras as well placed around the property. And it captured three strangers coming onto the property and setting the fire and leaving. So that was, I mean, that's just one part of it. There's a whole bunch of stuff. You know, I've, I've had multiple death threats against me from multiple people. I've had shots fired at me. Just all kinds of crazy stuff. And after my home was burned down, uh, six months after it, there was another fire set on the property that appeared to be targeting my quad and my RV trailer that I was living in at the time. So it's been a lot of really crazy events and other neighbors in the area were got had gotten concerned you know everybody's afraid of fire up there there's you know wildfires are going on raging every summer so um one of the neighbors was drunk and and talked to me uh and and said you that i couldn't go back up to my place that i had to leave and um the neighbor, unfortunately, was a neighbor that we'd always had a verbal agreement that we could cross their property to get into ours. And so they kind of had this power that if I didn't do what they said, that they could just remove, you know, no, no longer agree to let us go to our place. And then it would be, you know, more of a hassle. So <clears throat> I left and now I'm living in the Bay Area and the property is just sitting up there vacant and getting destroyed more and more by weather, by vandals, and by bears. And what, what are you doing now for income? I am on disability uh, due to my degenerative joint condition. And, you know, my I would hope to, to develop and patent some inventions that I had come up with. Uh, one of them is a water-saving invention that could be saving billions of gallons of water every day. So it's really important, but it takes money to do that. And, and I'm, I don't have a lot of money right now. Everything that I do have has kind of been going into the lawsuit, trying to get justice out of this whole situation. So, um, yeah, it would be great if I could be working on my inventions, but instead I'm just working on trying to make justice happen in a country where it's not a guarantee by any means, unfortunately. Well, you have an interesting uh, 2024 coming ahead. Yes. I guess the obvious question is, who's the least worst? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think um, you can get most worse than Trump. <laughs> That's my opinion. Um, I don't believe he was good for our country really in any way. And it may be hard to find reasons why how Biden has really helped the country as well. But um, I, I'm, I fear I'm in fear of Trump. I don't, I do not like the way he operates the way it's kind of always chaos all the time. And nobody really knows what's going on. Um, I was 
very much anti-Trump long before he ever ran for office. Um, there's a investigative journalist named David K. Johnston who's really, really good. And he has written about Trump a lot, about his business deals, about these crazy tax breaks that he would get, and basically how Trump ran his business. And to me, none of that, you know, all of that that I learned about Trump before he ever ran for office made me feel that he was uh, not a, a good choice for a president. Okay, Russ, I want to go back a little to talk about your disability because I didn't really sure. understand what you were talking about. And I think some <laughs> of our listeners may have the same problem. Yeah. Um, so degenerative joint condition, uh, basically just means your joints kind of wear out before they normally would. Um, if, if you know spinal anatomy, you've got like a, a jelly, kind of a jelly disc in between each vertebra in your spine. I have about eight of those that are just shot <laughs> and two of them have already been removed. Um, five of them are in my neck. And so with those discs compromised, what happens is you lose space between your vertebra and then it pinches on nerves that run through your vertebra. And when those nerves get pinched, the body's reaction is just to tighten everything up. And so all your muscles just contract. And so I generally go all day with some muscles in my body just contracting the entire day. Um, so that's, it, it leads to a lot of fatigue because your muscles are constantly working, even though they're not doing anything for you. Um, they're constantly stressing and, and working. So um, it's a really tough and ugly condition. And I, some of the pains that I get too are like being in a torture chamber. Like I'll feel like I'm getting stabbed by ice picks um, or having electric shocks or having hot water splashed on me or having body parts cut off. So it's a pretty horrific um, symptom. But luckily the worst of the symptoms don't appear very often. So what about doctors? Do they have any idea what to do with it? Uh, I, I have a pain management specialist that I talk to, but I've just gotten started with him. We've only had one visit so far, and he really needs to see my MRI images um, before we can get started. So I'm waiting to get an MRI. And from there, I mean, there's always pain pills, but I'm trying to avoid that. Um, especially pain pills kind of, they mask the pain. So it's still there. And whatever you're doing that is causing the pain, uh, you know, causing the damage to your body is going to still be going on because you're not feeling the pain that's telling you to stop doing that. Um, so it's always, I've always found it to be beneficial not to use pain medication and to try to manage my pain naturally, which I generally can do with a lot of stretching and a lot of physical therapy. And I've become pretty good at being able to kind of be my own chiropractor. And so I can shift vertebra in my spine. And even, you know, my ribs get pulled out of place. Sometimes I've, I've figured out how to drag them back where they belong. And my shoulder blades also, are pulled out of place, and so I have certain stretches that I can get those to shift back to where they're supposed to be. So are you in a wheelchair? I'm not in a wheelchair, no. 
good for you. Yeah, I actually walk pretty well most of the time. Um, my knees are not in good condition. They're pretty much worn out, too. I don't have any cartilage left in them. But as long as I do these certain exercises and keep up with my walking, I can usually walk at least a couple of miles without pain. Same. So since a lot of these things have happened to you, you've become an advocate, an instigator, a son of a you-know-what for many organizations. Talk about what you do and why you do it. Sure. Um, it actually goes way, way back. Uh, I, I, I learned what the term rabble-rouser meant when I was in the third grade, and ever since then, I always felt like that was my role in society is to try to whip everybody up to be on the same page and get things done especially when it comes to government, because I believe the government is badly broken. Um, so politically, I, I, I did a lot of thinking about that and how our country could save itself, and I came up with a blueprint for how we could actually draft reforms that would get money out of politics, uh, make sure that we have election integrity, and also make sure that we have ethics rules for politicians that are so strict that, that corruption couldn't exist. And so uh, I've for the past 10 years or so, I've been trying to promote this idea, which really isn't catching fire. Everybody kind of already has their political camp and their ideology and their agenda, and it's really hard to change that. But if, if 100 million or so people in the United States said, you know what, instead of voting for Democrat or Republican, uh, and you can still vote for whoever you want to vote for, but thinking that that's going to lead to something that's going to benefit you in the end is just kind of a fool's errand. So instead of supporting these political parties, if everybody instead supported an agenda that worked for all of us, we could actually get these things done. And if we had this large enough voting bloc um, then we could force politicians to approve these reforms and to enact them. And if any politician didn't, we could have them removed from office. So politics has long been one of my big um, sort of, I don't know what you would describe it, uh, altruistic endeavors, I guess, or you know, trying to improve things for people. And uh, so, yeah, politics has been a big one for, for a long time for me. What about Robert Kennedy Jr.? Would you support him? He's an interesting guy. There, He definitely says a lot of things that I don't like and that I don't believe are true or honest. And I'm not sure why he says those things, if he's just maybe confused about the real situation or if he uh, is lying for one reason or another. I think um, he's a pretty hardcore supporter of Israel. And I believe that they're doing a lot of bad things to the Palestinians in a situation that really can't continue. You can't treat people worse than cattle. Um, and that's really why the October 7th attack happened, because for years and years, decades, these people have been treated, I mean, far worse than a second-class citizen. I mean, they're really, in, in the Jim Crow South, you didn't have white people come in and kick black people out of their homes and then just start living there. Um, and that's actually happening to happening to Palestinians. So it's it's really a horrible situation that has to be remedied, um, and it's bad for Israel too to be in that situation. Obviously, they're going to have 
all these militant people who were trying to kill them to, to gain their own freedom or to gain more rights. So there has to be a solution there that, you know, isn't about warfare and killing people. Um, it's a, you know, everybody has to be able to have their own autonomy. And so without that, there's always going to be conflict. So you're a supporter of a two-state uh, solution, I would think. Yeah, a two-state solution would be good, or just a one-state solution where Palestinians have full rights. I think it's hard to imagine that. I think that there's so much bad blood between the two people that there's always going to be biases, and I think that would be a hard one to work out. I would love to see it. I would love to see everybody just forget about the past, come together, and, and move toward a better future. And I believe that uh, South Africa was able to do that pretty well after they ended apartheid. So maybe there are some lessons to be learned with how they did it. I mean, I, I think they really, when the power basically transferred from the white people in South Africa to the black people. And when that happened, um, Nelson Mandela, who was the leader of the country and was black, I mean, really went out of his way to forgive everything that had happened and not to hold a grudge. Um, I think it would be hard for a lot of people to do the same thing. I think Mandela was pretty unique in his ability to do that, but that's probably where the answer would lie if you were trying to have a one-state solution with everybody involved. Well, my cousin invited him to Toronto, and he, he uh, spoke to a lot of kids more than anybody else. Yeah. So having said that, we got this character by the name of Russ Farnsworth. What's he going to be doing three years from today? <laughs> you know, I've been thinking about that question, and um, it's so hard to tell because every day I'm living in, you know, reacting to everything that's happening. So the whole issue in Siskiyou County is still ongoing. Uh, the road to my property is still blocked by these people. So I'm still working every day uh, in in court and writing complaints to different agencies, all of which have been ignored so far. Um, but I'm constantly having to do work to try to get those barriers from my driveway removed and get the whole situation sorted out so that my family can start going back to our property and enjoy it again. Um and then I also have to react to whatever is going on physically with me, you know, with my condition and dealing with whatever pains I might have. But uh, I certainly will still be talking politics, I'm sure, in three years. I've been doing it my whole life, and uh, so that'll still be a thing. And I have a feeling that, unfortunately, my grand vision for how to fix the country won't be embraced by everybody. Uh, within the next three years, so I'll probably still be hammering that. Um, I also have come up with a uh, health and fitness program that I produce on YouTube for free. And because I've been dealing with my condition for 30 years, I've really had a long time to figure out how to manage pain naturally. And so I want to share those techniques with other people who may also be suffering from the same condition, or maybe they're just older um, and so they're starting to have a lot of the same problems, or maybe somebody's just injured, you know, gets in a car accident or something and gets their spine damaged. And I think there's a lot of people that would 
benefit from knowing some of the techniques that I've discovered. So, Russ, what is the YouTube channel? Uh, I have so many. <laughs> I believe it is. I'm so sorry that I, I should be. I should come with with this knowledge. I I believe it's um, R. Charon Pagan. Uh, so if you search for that, all my videos will come up. You'll see my YouTube channel. And um, that's where all of the, the well, I call the, my health and fitness program Old Fogey Yoga, because that's really what it's about, is taking these old bodies and try to, you know, keep them functioning. And I knew that um, a lot of the audience for this program, because I was planning to teach it to the older ranchers, in Siskiyou County, those are the kind of people that are never going to go out and buy yoga pants and they're not going to get a gym membership. So I knew that this program had to be structured in a way that these elderly people could really do it at home. And they may not even want to set up a, a workout routine. Um, but I've found a lot of ways where just, you know, reaching for something, you can actually do a stretch while you're doing that reach and you're actually benefiting your body while you're doing something that you're doing anyway. And so that to me seemed like the real key to getting some of these people who are not gonna buy a gym membership to be able to work out and benefit their body in ways that uh, doesn't require that they have a workout routine or anything specific, but they can just do it doing their normal activities. And some of that take place in the water? In the water. That's very good. Water is very low impact. Um, I am an avid swimmer and always have been. Uh, so I, I, I mean, I definitely believe in swimming. I don't have, other than swimming, I don't have a lot of specific activities that I do in the water. But there are programs, especially if you do have a gym membership, there may be an aquatic program where you have an instructor and they run you through a bunch of different exercises and that definitely is a good thing especially for older and injured bodies Russ you've had an interesting life but I think you're at the early stages you've got another yeah. uh, 30 years to go and uh, as long as you we'll hope you, as long as you have fun while you're doing it and you keep learning and that's what I do so yes thank you for your time today Thank you so much, Peter. It was great talking with you.